Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of This Week in AML. I'm John Byrne, Chair of the AMLRS Advisory Board. And I'm Elliot Berman, our Creative Director. We are excited to welcome you to the This Week in AML podcast, where we explore key news and developments in the global financial crime prevention community. Hi, this is Elliot Berman from AML Right Source. John Byrne and I have taken the weekend off for the uh, holidays, uh, but we wanted to bring you a, an archive edition of This Week in AML. Uh, we've selected the uh, Basil AML Index 2022 episode from uh, October of this year. We think you'll still find it valuable and hope you enjoy listening to it over the holiday weekend. We'll be back on January 6th with new editions. Hope you enjoy the holidays and have a happy new year. Hi, John. How are you this week? Hi, Elliot. Uh, doing fine. Obviously, a lot, lot going on and I uh, just wanted to sort of dive right into it. Um, we had reached, we had um, the uh, uh, Basel Institute on Governance actually reached out to us to let us know that they were uh, posting and announcing their AML index for 2022 um, earlier this week. And so um, we immediately asked them whether they'd be willing to sit down and do a lengthier conversation. So we'll be doing that at some point, but I thought it was important that you and I chat briefly about the index, because as we always talk about the need for resource information so you can do better training and better due diligence, whether it's from FATF, US, what have you. And this index, um, we've known about it. It's a pretty interesting metric of sort of the global response or gaps in, in AML, um, both compliance and uh, strategy. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the index, it it looks at 18 different factors, which I'm not going to read out to you, but you can see them in the uh, in the press release and in the uh, report. Uh, and it scores countries from one uh, to 10, 10 being the highest risk, one being the lowest risk uh, for both money laundering and terrorist financing risk. Um, and then it comes up with, a, among other things, uh, an individual country um, index number and a uh, global con uh, index number. The global index number this year is 5.25, which is the same as 2021. And what I found interesting is they noted that, first, we're stuck. Secondly, there, there was some improvement in the establishment of effective frameworks but there were four key areas where things went backwards. And these are things you and I have talked about quite regularly and we've written about quite regularly. Corruption, financial transparency, public transparency, and political and legal risks. And uh, basically their uh, short description of the results is one step forward, four steps back. Right. And just, just to give you some uh, quick stats, and you'll see the countries, all the countries that they that they rank. The U.S. is uh, 99th with a 4.32. Ireland is 109 at 4. Um, the uh, um, Canada, uh, another place where we're obviously located, um, 101 at 4.25. Uh, so I, I think, um, and if you, you know, bad or worse countries would be Turkey is at 5.54. And then you go all the way up to the 
to the number one country listed in the, uh, which is the Congo, uh, Dominican, DR Congo, uh, followed by Haiti. So you look at this and you go, well, what does that mean? And as you said, it's uh, uh, the, the metrics uh, don't just look at things like effectiveness. They look at a whole series of indicators, what FATF has said, what others have said. It's really pretty fascinating. Again, I've seen this before, but sort of looking at it now from a what can we learn from perspective? I think there's a lot of good, solid information. And, and you know, in terms of areas of needed improvement, no surprise, but because we've talked about this constantly, the issue of beneficial ownership, you know, that that is still corporate transparency is still a big gap. Uh, certainly, you know, we're not finished with the registry in the U.S. A lot of other countries are still working on this. So things like that are listed in, in the uh uh, in the right in the rankings as well. Yes, uh, they did notice note that um, uh, a cr- of the ranked countries, they see that both countries and financial in- governments and financial institutions are doing better um, on do- running risk based programs. Right, um, and they mainly focus, as you and I have many times, on the fact that that means putting the resources you have. Um, it, uh, focusing them on your highest risk thing. So that was a good thing. Um, they talked about the fact that there's still a significant need to improve international cooperation. Um, and they also noted, um, and this uh, doesn't surprise me, and I know it won't surprise you, that compliance levels are dropping significantly as it relates to cryptocurrencies and virtual assets. You and I have talked about those spaces uh, a fair amount. Um, they are very f- uh, fast moving and fast evolving. And this is a place where uh, governments often lag when new technologies are racing along to, uh, as governments try to get their policy viewpoints uh, focused on a very fast moving target. Yeah, and they, and they break, besides country rankings, they do regional rankings too, which I thought was pretty important. Um, and they list things that we don't always talk about, like which countries that have high risk of money laundering, terrorist financing, also suffer from high risk of environmental crime. You know, obviously, we talked a little bit about that. We've actually interviewed some folks, but that that's a pretty uh, interesting space as well. And they also do talk about what happens in terms of um, high risk. So they say, for example, you know, once they decide, decides wrong, once they measure a country that's considered high risk from, from all the, the uh, things that they look at to come up with that designation, um, that those high risk countries can also suffer de-risking. You know, so institutions decide to terminate their operations in those countries to avoid the increased risk and compliance cost. And then they say it, it negatively influences the, those countries' financial stability because then capital is exiting the country. And then of course, we've talked about this many times, it's common that the black market grows as a result of de-risking, and that could uh, further exacerbate the risks of money laundering. So they do talk about um, de-risking. Then they talk about why they rank something as high risk. And as I said, they look at all sorts of things. They look at FATF, European Union, individual countries have their own lists of high-risk countries. So it's de- definitely what goes into this is pretty is, is very comprehensive and very, uh, I think, valuable. So if I'm 
an AML officer and I'm looking at this, and certainly if I'm global, but even if I'm not, I'm looking at the gaps that they've identified and try to map that to my own internal review and see what is it that we're doing as an institution or that our clients are doing and how we can improve. Yes. Um, I thought it was also interesting that they talked about the fact that there are improvements in technical compliance, but that those are lagged significantly by effective compliance. So again, we, um, the idea of just checking the box that you, that your program either at the institution level or even at the, at the country level has the things it's supposed to have in it is not enough. It's that they're deployed in an effective way to actually counteract the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, for me, one of the things that, you know, I took away from this is uh, in the, in the executive summary, they talk about the fact that um, particularly on the intergovernmental cooperation that pro, uh, front progress remains paralyzed. That's a direct quote from the, from the report. Um, that's not a good thing. Um, slow progress is not ideal, but uh, peril, uh, being paralyzed is a very bad thing. Right. Yes. And you're right. That's in the executive summary, which uh, you know, points out uh, the emphasis, uh, you know, that they've made there. Yeah. I, you know, um, I'm really excited about talking to their folks in a couple of weeks because I want to ask not not just about how they arrived at the rankings, because they do tell you a lot of that in the report, but what they recommend in terms of responding to the rankings. You know, what what can you do as a result? And one of the things they do say in the report is this cannot just be handled by governments alone. So I think that's interesting. So they say, as you're looking at the index, all stakeholders should be addressing risks and weaknesses. And that's also, of course, the private sector. So and we've always believed that, right? Private-public partnership has always been a key element for us, um, you know, since, since day one of doing these conversations. It's always been important, and our community certainly embraces that. But I think that's important that they identify that as well. Governments alone, you know, can improve effectiveness through simply enforcement, just the regulations. There's got to be supervision. There's got to be a response. There's got to be resources and training and all that is sort of logical. We understand that, but the fact that they called that out, I think is pretty important. I agree. Um, and it's something that all of us, whether we're in the government or in the private sector, really need to keep uh, front of mind so that we're looking for opportunities to forge those partnerships and where they exist to keep them uh, vital and active. Right. So again, we'll, we'll be... Uh having a conversation in a few weeks with the folks uh, from the Basel group and a, a lengthier conversation. I would say between now and then, if there's any particular questions you have about the report that you'd like me to ask them, uh, send us an email and we'd be happy to um, ask those folks to address it. That's great, John. Uh, besides the conversation uh, with the Basel uh, uh, representatives, what else do you have in the hopper? Uh, we're planning a few additional interviews. Um, so in, until those are finalized, I'll just leave it that way in, in, in different areas of financial crime and fraud, some government folks, some folks in the, in the private sector. So we're working on a number of, uh, interviews that I hope to have completed before 
the end of the month. Um, just a quick aside, in a, uh, in a, in a uh, event, a project that you and I are involved in, which is a separate from AML Right Source, is our partnership forum, AML partnership forum that's going to be held next uh, April in um, Washington, D.C. We're working on that. It'll be our second annual and more, more to come on that. The planning committee is uh, already uh, engaged and working on topics and working on panels. Uh, so more to come on that. And that'll uh, you can reach that through our website, but also separately, just directly to the AML Partnership Forum website. So excited about that. Um, you can never start putting these programs too early. Now, on, um, on October 27th, we'll be doing this month's webinar, which will be on AMLA, um, an update on where we stand. And I know that um, uh, FinCEN published the uh, Beneficial Ownership Registry Regulation. So we'll be talking about that with our expert panel, as well as uh, the state of other reg uh, pending regulations, guidance, and studies. So uh, you can sign up for that. Uh, on our website. Sounds great. Elliot, uh, great talking to you. I hope you uh, feel better and we will catch up next week. Uh, you too, John. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.